Open your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Timothy. I'm going to read, starting with verse 1, we're going to end at verse 7. Ronaldo already preached through verses 1 and 2. I'm just going to read that. Think about the Apostle Paul as he writes these things, as he says, grace, mercy, and peace. What a great message just that is. What a great gospel we have that drives mercy, grace, mercy, and peace um, into our lives as well. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of our God, of our God, our Savior, and of, Je- of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, just as we consider this message today and our opener as well, to love one another. We see the great heart of the apostle driven through the heart of his mentee, Timothy. We see your work through all these things. We understand our frailty as people and our need for the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to direct. Lord, we ask for forgiveness even for our lack of good memory. That You have provided all these things for us in your Word, and yet at times we seem to not consider you. Lord, I pray that you would work through our hearts as we walk through this book and to consider your truth as paramount uh, to the ministry that you have before us here in this earth. Lord, we thank you for a marriage that we will have, a supper that we will have in your presence in the future. Lord, help us to adorn ourselves with truth as we prepare our hearts for those things, to armor ourselves with the things of God that you have given us, that we might be acceptable and pleasing, living sacrifices to your grace and your glory. Help us to understand our own sin as well as we look to walk in humility before you and with others. Help us not to be haughty, but to be gracious. In your name I pray, amen. When there is a present danger, love shares a concern and begs for wisdom to be enacted. When I was about eight years old, I wanted a new feature on my bicycle. I somehow obtained a rear view mirror. It bolted on the handlebars and had a safety reflector facing out. My dad installed it. We spent time adjusting it. Along with the equipment, I received some loving instruction from my dad. I remember it very clearly. Now, son, the danger is in front of you, not behind you. Don't gaze to the rear when you're moving forward. I got it. I know that, dad. You don't need to tell me that. Within a block of my maiden voyage with my new mirror, I was laying on the top of a parked vehicle, right square on the trunk. Scripture provides warnings. The warnings are from a loving source. The wise person heeds the warning. Ronaldo properly identified these things and actually um, preached part of my sermon today in his first hour in his quote. The root cause is the same as in most cases of error in the church. We don't heed the warnings. We have the book right before us, but we don't heed the warnings. 
the intruding of rationalistic speculations, the passion for systemic consistency, a reluctance to recognize the existence of the mystery and to let God be wiser than man, and a consequent subjecting of scripture to the supposed demands of human logic. It's a pretty academic statement. But nonetheless, what it says is that the heart of man is to be wiser than God. Our sin wants to be wiser than God. We do not want to hear correction. We do not like reproof. But the Apostle Paul knows that it's the loving thing to do. In 1 Peter, we're given a warning. Be sober, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What a warning. Is that true? Do we operate in life, as 1 Peter mentions here, be of sober spirit, be on the alert? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Do we believe that? Is he seeking someone really to devour? Our VBS scholars just provided tremendous instruction from Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We can teach that, but do we believe it? Do we understand the schemes of the devil and do we understand his tactics? Are we armed with the right armor? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for the saints. The Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these great words to the church at Ephesus. Timothy, in 1 Timothy, is called to pastor the church at Ephesus. It does not appear that the leadership of the church of Ephesus heeded this. They were not armed, they were given information. They did not pursue truth, but pursued their own wisdom. Timothy's call to that great church in Ephesus is a serious call. There are problems that have been brewing. This sound instruction comes right from the right source. It has the right goals and is trustworthy. Why do we not heed it when we have it? Why did those Believers at Ephesus not grasp what they were being taught. Sometimes we're given bad advice by individuals who have self-seeking motives. The motive of the deliverer is wrong. We're given the word of God, we know the motive of God, we know the heart of God, but somehow we trust the heart of man. You can eat the fruit of that tree. kind of like a lion seeking to devour its prey. Sometimes there are those who bait the trap. Leading the church is a tall task. Rightly dividing the word of God is a tall task. Every time I prepare for a message, I understand that so clearly. The heart is to rightly divide, to make it clear to point the right direction? Are the points well constructed? Are they understandable? 
Why doesn't my mind not completely grasp the simplicity of the message? I just want to make two points today, and I hope they're clear. I'm going to give you the two points, and we'll revisit them at the end of the message. False teachers. False teachers have wrong truth. They present root truth with wrong motives. They elevate man and glorify themselves. This is the heart of the false teacher. Godly instruction is the, is the comparative opposite. It has the truth, presents the truth with right motives, is meant to glorify God, bears the fruit of faith. Those in charge of godly instruction are called to protect the integrity of teaching and to ensure that it is true, and that the motive and the goals of instruction stay pure. Eric just, just read the short list of passages on agape love, sacrificial love. That's the short list. This is the motive, is love. Love of God and love for God's people is the motive. A church by its very nature, is placed in a location of danger. There are multiple voices claiming wisdom. This was very true in Ephesus. It's also true here at GCF. Consider the godless culture around Ephesus and the godless culture surrounding GCF. A people group who meet on a regular basis and come together to encourage one another in Christ. All around them is pagan worship, worship of self, another selfie stick to buy. What about others? There are, there are distractions and interactions from outside the fellowship to go along with past practice habits and default tendencies. Do you have default tendencies? Sinful tendencies, I do. Past practice habits that need to be slain. New practices that need to be vivified. The church contains God-fearing followers along with individuals who are not content with current status, who are continuously driving operational change based on, not truth, but traditions, personality power, cultural trends, academic philosophies, and new ideas. It's interesting to just drive around and look at all the church names. What are the new names of churches? And I don't want to draw too much from that, and I'm not going to say them, but it's just interesting to see that there's somehow a discontent with the church as the Bible describes. To just be the church to love one another within it, for the redeemed to come together and to drive out of them an encouragement and a faithful living by God's grace. In Ephesus, the elders were divided regarding teaching and direction. It's amazing that that is a truth. It is absolutely amazing. The church was started with the right foundations, but now is in a perilous situation as we come into 1 Timothy. Regardless of en regarding endless discussions that seem to be leading the church to debate every decision, every, everything that they were doing became a debate. Debates don't produce love. They drive people to positions and to hold those positions in pride. The scripture was weaponized in, at the church of Ephesus to defend the new ideas that have not been taught by founding leaders. There was a deviation from the orthodox of Paul's teaching. Poor orthodox or bad teaching produces bad practice and every kind of problem within a church. When the elders are divided, 
there is no capacity to address the issues at hand. Leadership matters. The heart of leadership matters. The truth that leadership produces matters. When there is division in that camp, there will not be harmony within the church. There were several scholars in Ephesus. They were in a group who are teachers and were asserting influence that seemingly was diverting away from the gospel. The regular attenders are there, seemingly looking for what their itching ears want to hear. Ephesus is a mess. Many churches today is, are a mess. Well taught, but deviating from the truth. A few questions arise. What are the steps for leadership to steer the ship back on course? What leadership changes are needed to address the doctrinal divide against the fellowship? Who can lead the charge to bring love back to the fellowship and to drive out the influence that is deviating from sound teaching of Christ? Who will confront the unbiblical reasoning that threatens to render the Bible as a secondary reference book? These are the issues that the church at Ephesus was battling. Who will have the fortitude to stand for the truth? Answer to those questions is that you're going to need someone who knows the truth. Someone with a zeal for the truth. You would want someone with sound wisdom in order to enact the truth. Someone with conviction and fortitude to confront those who are leading people to consistent speculation and division. Someone who is called and affirmed to do the work. Someone with a track record and experience of, of being battle-tested. Someone who loves God sacrificially and solely. Someone with an unflinching character who is motivated to love others sacrificially. When the truth is not projected, the leader should hurt. The leader should hurt because the truth hurts the hearer. If you don't love the people, you won't care what is said to them. Someone with unflinching character is someone whose character is driven by the, by the work of God within them. Someone who would stick, out, stick it out when the going got tough. The Apostle Paul was called by Christ to preach the gospel. He was pulled out of darkness by Christ and directly called to the ministry of the gospel. The authority of his calling, Christ himself. He was taught by Christ and had a soft conscience before the Lord. He was sensitive to sin. He was the chief of sinners, as he describes, and he was sensitive to it. Are we sensitive to sin? Are we qualified? He was battle-tested. There's no one more battle-tested in their humanity other than Christ than the Apostle Paul. He was experienced, and he had an incredible testimony of the saving work done in him. He reminds himself of the gospel all the time. He was a scholar who applied his knowledge with love to the hearer. He did not compromise truth and confronted threatening sin. Yet Paul could only be in one place at a time. The church at Ephesus was in peril with no internal leadership direction to, to, right, the, to right the ship in the face of the storm. The wind of sin is blowing through the church, and there is no sound teacher to redirect the sails toward truth and love. Paul had ministered in the Ephesian church for three years. Wow. We're going to call a pastor. We're probably not going to get the Apostle Paul. He ministered there for three years. 
He had made progress but had not fully completed the task necessary. He had warned the elders regarding the peril that was among them. Listen to Paul's farewell address to these men who are local leaders at the church of Ephesus. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he addresses. He does not anticipate ever seeing them again, and his passion for, gospel, for the gospel and for the purity of worship overflows through his oration. Paul was prom promised many afflictions and outcomes of his travel to Jerusalem as he left the elders in, Ephe in, in Ephesus. He makes an impassioned plea to the elders of the Ephesian church upon his departure. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, we can read his farewell address. Starting in verse 7, it says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. To Paul, Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of all teaching. He is the source of truth, and he is the only solution for the church. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there except the Holy Spirit, solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Paul does not expect to return to Ephesus. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Here's the heart of the minister. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. This is his instruction among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Do you understand the work that you do? Does leadership understand where they've been and how they've come to the point in which they are? Is leadership on guard? Do they love the flock? Do they understand it was purchased by the blood of Christ? I know that after my departure, starting in verse 29, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Here we see the motive. Not exaltation of Christ, but to draw people to people. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are, who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. Paul's credibility was not about money. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus and he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul 
and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Paul's concern for the churches never stops. The saving grace of God was so embedded into his life that he could not contain himself. For Paul, a vacation was to spend time in jail. This produced time for him to write letters, to share his concerns and encouragement to the churches and to, and to its called ministers and to all the saints. Such a letter was written to the churches near Ephesus. There is no vacation from prayers, warnings, petitions, instructions, and, and, and threats. As we come to 1 Timothy, Paul's concern for the church pointed to the elders and his instruction was perilous. Would have been nice if he could have written a pastoral epistle to the elders at the church of Ephesus. There was no capacity to return for Paul to the church. So he instructed a, a close follower, a faithful friend, a faithful servant, Timothy, to go to the church at Ephesus and to do the work of God. Now, Timothy was young, but Timothy was experienced. He was young, but he was not a new convert. There's every indication regarding Paul's urging Timothy to stay on at Ephesus that this man was qualified, that he was extremely well taught and had a heart for the local church. There's an indication in the discussion of Timothy that Timothy was gifted. Probably more gifted in oration than the apostle himself. He was aware of false doctrines that constantly threatened the local church. So when the apostle Paul urges this true child in the faith to remain on at Ephesus, he had great confidence not only in the work of the Lord, to correct the issues, but in Timothy because the work of God was in him. Timothy was the right man for the challenge. However, Timothy still needed encouragement and instruction. We've never arrived. If you think you've arrived, you haven't. Timothy still needed a mentor. He still needed a plurality. Paul provides that through this letter. Timothy likely would have preferred to stay with his mentor, Paul. But Paul urged him, he begged him, to stay on at Ephesus. The term urged is a synonym, synonym to beg or to implore. When you are begging someone to do something, you are concerned. For some, it may be at a store and wanting a new toy. But in this context, it reflects grave concern. There's an urgency that needs to be dealt with. Paul could have written them and said, I told you so. Didn't I say this to you in my farewell address? Did we not address these concerns in my book to you, in my letter to you? I warned you, and you did not act. This is not the heart of the Apostle Paul. Timothy's charge was to provide clear direction that you may instruct certain men not to strange, teach strange, doc, strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogy which gives rise to mere speculations. There was a, broken, a brokenness in the church, an opening of the door to strange doctrines. He had commended to God and to the word of his grace to this church, but how they veered off the path and are now being taught strange doctrines leading not to sanctification, but to mere speculation and ridiculous topics. Although we do not know exactly, we can hear justifications in the mind of the followers and the people there at the church 
Can't we all get along and appreciate the contributions of diverse thinking? Who made Paul the authority over the local congregation? Are churches never going to grow without becoming more relevant? There are no concerns over following a little mythology. Aren't we all coming from the culture? We understand the truth. Won't the Greeks appreciate a little sensitivity to their past and their concerns? Looking at genealogies provides a robust discussion. The issues always seem to start this way. Justification in the mind. The elevation of human reasoning above God's design. This is always the motive to set aside God's directives and elevate man's ideas. Man's ideas have no authority, so they are perfect target, targets for endless debates. The church stumbles with no absolute guidance and direction. They have set the Bible on the shelf. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul provides his overall purpose in writing the letter. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, that is Christ incarnate, was vindicated in the spirit, he was sinless and righteous, he was seen by angels, known by all levels of beings, proclaimed among the nations to include the Gentiles, believed in the world, resulted, his presence resulted in faith and belief, taken up in glory, he was exalted through his ascension. This is the mission of the church, to support the truth and to build a common confession surrounding the work and the victory of Christ. We have started some discussions with pastoral candidates. Our doctrinal statement is on our website. One of the problems with doctrinal statements is that they get dusty, even on a website. You can forget you have them, and you can deviate from the truth. In those discussions, it's important to say, we are who we say we are. It's important for someone to say, we affirm the doctrine as being brought forward through Scripture to the people of this church. It's important for us to say that our people are prepared to hear the truth. Right doctrine is true, and teaching, and the teaching of it implies that one practices the truth. Right doctrine is right orthodoxy. Right orthodoxy and right doctrine produce right action. There is no purpose to teaching if there is no application to its content. How do you apply speculations, myths, and genealogies? How do you make that work in your life to produce love? To teach false things is to teach false things as truth is to invite people to wrong applications. This is why James puts forth such a strong warning in chapter three. He provides such a clear direction. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brethren, knowing that such will incur a stricter judgment. Paul's concern and his reflection to Timothy is to correct the ship. It's going to take work, and it's not going to be easy. The false teachers must be stopped. They must be stopped for several reasons. It is not a reflection of the pillar of the truth. False teaching provides no merit to God or his eternal purposes, no benefit for his administration of his church. It damages and misleads the hearers, and it condemns the teachers. Imagine Timothy pastoring and leading with no divine purpose, leading hearers further from sanctifying work that is to be done in them, living in efforts to accommodate strange ideas. 
Why is our humanity like this? Boy, we should fall on our face every day, thank the Lord for our salvation, for the truth of his word. We should be the most humble people walking alongside our Lord, understanding the condition of the lost. Paul commands Timothy to remain, to stay put, to continue to lead. Forget exactly what the years of service speculated that Timothy spends in Ephesus, but it's a long time. Paul says, urgently go and stick it out. Stay put. Continue to lead. The purpose was to instruct men to, to stop teaching strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Paul's charge was to command. Paul also says to gently restore. False teachers are to be commanded. Command certain men that this is not an instruction to teach. This is an instruction to stop. Unfortunately, these men were likely elders in, in the church at Ephesus. Those who should be refuting error are propagating it. They presumed to be teachers. In fact, in the Greek, this implies that they were placing themselves over scholars. This is not just an assumptive. This is very, very prideful. They are placing themselves over scholars. They're scholars of scholars in their own mind. A few verses later in this chapter, we learn that Paul had excommunicated two individuals from the church, Hymenaeus and Alexander, for speaking blasphemy, removing them from the protection of the fellowship so that they would learn not to deviate from the sound script of the gospel. It took Paul's leadership to remove them the elders were not sufficiently managing to protect the church. This had already occurred when Timothy was called. In chapter 3, Paul spends considerable time focusing on character qualifications for leaders. It is likely that the church at Ephesus had both unqualified elders and unqualified deacons. In chapter 5, Paul indicates that the elders who go on sinning are to be publicly disciplined. These men were deviating from and distracting the hearers from the administration of God himself, which is through his gospel. Teaching always bears fruit. Here we see that the fruit is not the work of Christ, but speculations. To speculate is to argue a point without merit or without facts or to ruminate on useless points or facts. Speculation is dangerous within the church. How about let's stick to the truth? We don't need to speculate about it. We just have to trust it. See, that's the big problem, isn't it? Trusting truth is hard. So it's easier to speculate about it. We can just have an argument about it and not really ever resolve ourselves to be obedient. The area in the teaching included myths. Likely, man's wisdom on traditions may be from Greek mythology. We're not exactly told. Endless genealogies. Likely, the focus on allegorical interpretations of the Old Testament. But we're not completely told. There was no doubt legalistic expectations, such as described in chapter 4, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from certain foods, creating all sorts of rules for the congregation, levying heavy bondages of man-made expectations. These teaching and focuses corrupted the hearers and had nothing to do with furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. One theologian characterizes false teachers as embodying five characteristics. I think this is really the short list, but I'm going to go with them. They are driven by the desire for novelty. 
God's just not enough. They are like people who must be part of the latest fashion and latest craze. They despise old things for no better reason than they are old and desire new things for no better reason than they are new. Novelty draws attention to the presenter as opposed to the message. Whether the technology is new or old, the message is the same. Paul did not come up with persuasive words or any novelty. He preached the truth. The Holy Spirit does not need our novelty to convict the heart. So the false teacher first is driven by the desire for novelty. Number two, they raise the intellect at the expense of the heart. Their conception of religion is speculation and not heart change. Christianity has never demanded that people should stop thinking for themselves, but it does demand that their thinking should be dominated by a personal engagement with Christ. A high intellect is a gift from God, but the intellect does not provide a power to believe. Nicodemus's intellect and capacity to learn and to teach provided no ability without the Spirit to communicate wisdom leading to godliness. I just love that story of Nicodemus. Jesus' teaching pricked a heart, and by night he came to meet Christ. He did not understand the message of the cross. He did not understand how belief occurs, but he was a teacher. Praise the Lord for the Holy Spirit. As the wind blows, people are moved. And this is through truth by God's will. Number three, they deal in argument instead of action. They are more interested in obscure discussion than in the effective administration of the household of faith. They forget that the truth is only something to be accepted with, with the mind, but is also something that should be translated into action. We heard that today just on love. Love is something that exists, but it does not stay there. It acts. Jesus loved and he demonstrated his love that while we were still sinners, he died for us. There is always a danger of heresy when we fall in love with words and forget deeds. For deeds are the acid tests by which every argument should be tested. It says in James 2, but someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? We're given spiritual gifts, are we not? To be utilized for God's glory. Engage your gifts. If the love of God is in you, engage the love. Love as he loved. Jesus commanded it. Number four, they are moved by arrogance rather than by humility. They look down on, on a certain contempt on people who cannot follow their flights of intellectual speculation. You know, I wonder exactly, having attended conferences at various institutions, sometimes I think that seminarians fall into this. They're bright people. They're going through the classes. They're learning new things. And they're speculating about their own reasoning. They regard those who do not share their conclusions as ignorant fools. Christians somehow have to combine an immovable certainty with a gentle humility. Number five, they're guilty of dogmatism without knowledge. They do not really know what they are talking about, nor really understand the significance of the things about which they are so dogmatic. But if they understood they're offending a living God, would they be that dogmatic? It may well be that Christian cause has suffered more from ignorant dogmatism than from anything else. 
when we think of the characteristics of those who were troubling the church at Ephesus, we can see that their descendants are still with us. The key characteristic missing from false teachers is spirit-driven love. Not manufactured love, not talked about love, but love that comes through the believer by the will of the Holy Spirit. This is a gift of God. These strange teachings and motives behind them do not further the administration of God, which is by faith. They do not build God's church God's way, which is by faith in the finished work of Christ. They bear no fruit of the hearer. The Lord's leader must command them to stop. Timothy was to remain at Ephesus and command them to stop teaching these strange doctrines. So the false teacher's goals are always in contradiction to the truth. In verse 5 of our text, it says, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Here we have the difference between the false teacher and the true teacher. Paul instructs Timothy, we're instructed to heed this goal. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is sacrificial. The Lord's leader loves by commending sound doctrine. The goal of our instructions is agape, the divine love of God demonstrated through self-sacrifice. Agape through a pure heart is one that desires God and, and, and desires to please him. Purity and devotion to God. This is the call of the minister. This is the goal. The second goal is agape through a good conscience. A good conscience provides instruction that tunes the mind away from sin and to truth. The word of God is the, is the source of a conscience. God gives us a conscience, that's true. We know that murder's wrong. We know adultery's wrong. We're born with those right and wrong principles. But we ought to be increasingly sensitive between our conscience with, with the Lord. Agape through a good conscience. A good conscience provides instruction and tunes the mind away from sin and towards truth. Agape through a sincere faith. The Lord's leader should not be hypocritical. A faith that loves sincerely and acts sacrificially for Christ. This is the goal. The goal makes all the difference. Sound teaching focuses on, e on eternal and not temporal. This is, this is the goal. I think we should just take a pause here to say that much is said about 1 Timothy, chapter 3, qualifications, character qualities of deacons and elders. Much is said about that. But if you are a leader in this church, as leaders in the church of the Holy God, let's check our goals. What's our check of goals? Our character is important, but our motivations are important as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says to the church at Corinth, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. We are not, again, commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that, not, that one died for all, therefore all died, and that he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. 
If you love someone, you communicate the truth. You communicate the peril of sin. You try to increase their sensitivity to their conscience before the Lord. You sacrifice to herald that truth. And you risk human relationships to call them to repentance when the truth is not occurring. John 13, 34, and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. This is our testimony of the gospel in us. If you have love for one another, that's our testimony. The goal of our instruction produces God-praising results. I'm just going to review a list of these God-praising results. Sanctification. False teachers don't produce sanctification. Oneness. False teachers do not produce oneness. They produce division. Reconciliation. First between man and God through Christ and then to one another. Unity through the work of Christ. Patience towards others. Eternal hope. False teachers don't produce. They don't produce godliness. They don't produce humility. They don't produce endurance. They don't produce shared joy. They can't greet one another as Paul greeted Timothy. Grace and peace and mercy. They're, driven by, they're not driven by divine purpose. There's no gospel passion to change the lost. No focus on newness of life. No courage and boldness through fake things. No true fellowship with Christ. A pretty dismal prayer life with limited praise. They don't have a clear conscience. And their pursuit for a sincere faith evades them. The implications of heeding Paul's instruction and following sound doctrine as lived and taught by Christ are on display in so many portions of Scripture. Acts 2 speaks to this. Day by day, continuing with one, in, with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness. And what sincerity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all people. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. As leaders and believers, we must ask ourselves the question, do we bear the goals of this instruction? Do we walk in sacrificial love and devotion to Christ? Do we walk in sensitivity of conscience that's tuned to love Christ and tuned by him? Are we sensitive before the conscience of accuracy to God's word through the Spirit? Do we have a sincere faith or is our walk in hypocrisy? Do we bear the traits of strange doctrinal teachers or do we bear this, the traits of the right motives, the goals of instruction? Do we have a sincere faith? Are we prepared to tell those preaching strange doctrines to stop it? Do we love in a manner to express the truth of God's word despite the difficulty of it? Do we love God and fear him so as to rightly divide the word of truth? Do we use scripture to the benefit of our own reputation and to manipulate people or to benefit the hearers and to praise God? Do we walk in humility or do we walk in arrogance? Do we anticipate and are we prepared for the savage wolves in which we are warned will come? They will come. Fathers, are you teaching sound doctrine in your homes? 
this section of scripture ought to stir us. It ought to bother us that these things occur. Paul speaks of speculations numerous times in First and Second Timothy. He warns over and over and over, and he gives sound advice. In chapter 6, starting with verse 3, he says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine, a different teaching, and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions, disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For they brought nothing into the world, and so, so we cannot take anything out of it either. There were those at the, at the church at Ephesus who were not content as well. It's a difficult question. It's something that we should read carefully within Scripture. What's, what, what is our heart restless about? What's the anxieties of life that we contain? We need to be careful as we walk forward that we are not drawn to speculations that even dissuade our own heart. It's not always about a false teacher. But if we have wrong ideas within us, we're in trouble. I just want to close by reading Hebrews 10, 22 through 25. It's great instruction. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another towards love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It says in the last section of this passage, for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they, they have confident assertions. Just to review our two points. False teachers have wrong truth. Present truth with wrong motives. Elevate man and glorify self. That's the false teacher. Godly instruction has the truth presents the truth with right motives, is meant to glorify God, and bears fruit that glorifies God. Just a closing thought before we pray, and we're going to transition to our right hand of fellowship portion of our service. But God is sovereign over false teachers. Standing in a line for a meal at a conference on doctrinal issues, a young man was right in front of me. So I asked him for his testimony. He said that he came to the Lord after his wife did. He was probably about 33, 34 years old. And he said that, I asked him, well, how did your wife come to know the Lord? And he, and, and he said, through listening to Joel Osteen, the Lord is sovereign. What man means for evil, God means for good. We can trust this God for he is in control. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the instruction that you've provided for us here in First in Timothy. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that you brought forward. We thank you for the warning. We thank you for the admonition. And Lord, I pray that we would take it seriously here at GCF. 
Lord, I pray that you would be with all hearers, that we would be, in, be brought forward to hear that which is pleasing to you, that we would seek to praise you and to glorify you. That as we are members of one another and members of your household, that we would be lovers of people and lovers of God. Lord, help us and give us courage, even Minnesotans, to confront sin in a loving manner and to walk with our brothers and sisters in Christ sacrificially. In your name I pray, amen.